As you sort out with your kids the confusion of they're actually staying and not leaving, if you would join me in turning to 1 Samuel and your copy of God's Holy Word, we're going to be going through 1 Samuel chapter 1 into chapter 2, verse 10 together. And as we turn to 1 Samuel together, I'd like to pray once more before we offer this message in honor to our Lord. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and that you are the word by which all things were created through and for. And we pray as your creation that we would give you the honor and glory that is due to you on this day, as is due to you every day, that this day would remind us of the great rest that there is to be in you forever and eternally. I ask that this would be the best Christmas message I have yet to preach, that it would bear more fruit than any other message that I have ever preached for the sake of the glory of your name that your saints would rejoice in you more deeply, that those lost among us would be saved because your word would have its powerful work to do what we sang of, to bring about second birth. And we rejoice that you came and that you were coming, and we long for the day in which you would defeat the last enemy, which is death. Today we gather with simultaneous rejoicing and sorrow, but we pray for a joy which would surpass all understanding as we would see how you are the God who comes to redeem the broken, to break exile and darkness with your light and your freedom. May your name be honored in the preaching of your word. Amen. There are times in life when you have trials that seem manageable. You have enough money to provide a solution, and you have the skills to deal with it. And it's something that you've been through before. You think that you have the strength and the needed opportunities to do something about it. And because you can so easily envision yourself repairing your broken situation, you don't really find yourself looking to God. You don't find yourself praying or asking for help because in reality you've been deceived into thinking that you're all the help that you need. You're self-sufficient. But there's other times when you have trials that are so far beyond you that the only thing you can do is pray. You don't have the money to fix it. You have no idea what to do. And you know that apart from God's grace that you're not going to have what's needed to go through this. And while it's always the case that we should always trust the Lord with all of our heart and never lean on our own understanding, 
It's in these seemingly more broken moments that you're reminded that the one and only creator, redeemer, can make your path straight. And so you pray. You ask for God to intervene, often worshiping through prayer and tears before worshiping with prayer and thanksgiving. This was the case of Hannah long ago in 1100 B.C., It was that time of year, the time of year of a special holiday where believing Israelites would worship and sacrifice to the Lord in Shiloh where the temple was. And the temple would remind people of God's plan to dwell with them and in them. It was like Christmas and all Hannah wanted was the gift of a son who could be given back to God. Hannah's situation was peculiar and painful. She lived in the time of Judges, which the book of Judges tells us in its last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was a time when men thought of themselves more as victims than sinners. And people were eager to set a king over themselves who would give them the kind of safety and comfort they desired. Now, this wasn't a good thing. This was a bad thing that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 17. The time of judges was a time of absolute moral decline, which might explain Hannah's marriage situation. She was the wife of a man named Elkanah who also had another wife named Peninnah, the perpetually pregnant proud and provoking persecutor of Hannah with whom she shared a husband. Things are painful east of Eden and outside of God's design for marriage, but this wouldn't leave Hannah with God's second best. Some people may have tried to comfort Hannah in her situation with the reality that she enjoyed a somewhat comfortable wealth in her life, and she did have a husband who, after all, did genuinely care for her, but in this case, the bitterness overpowered any sweetness she may have had in life. It makes one wonder, how could such a broken home situation have anything to do with the kingdom of God? Well, let's consider the first eight verses of 1 Samuel 1, where we will see that brokenness is the place where God's repair work begins. 1 Samuel 1. Now, there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Rephaim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. Now, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children. But Hannah had no children. Now, that man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests to Yahweh there. And the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, and he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, but Yahweh had closed her womb. 
Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because Yahweh had closed her womb. And so it would happen year after year, as often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? As we consider the beginning of this chapter, why wouldn't Hannah's womb conceive like her husband's other wife? Was it the gluten in the bread? A vitamin deficiency? The lack of essential oils in the home? Or worse, Job's miserable comforters are right. She must be being punished for unconfessed sin. In a culture where people believed that children were a blessing from the Lord, they saw childlessness as a curse from the Lord. You can imagine the camp gossip as well as the curious inquiries of the children from that other woman in the tent. Mom, why doesn't Miss Hannah have any babies? Doesn't she want children too? And doesn't Dad want her to have babies too? Well, kids, it just seems that God just won't let her. Why not? Did she do something bad? I don't know. But let's bring Miss Hannah in to join us. I have a special announcement. You're pregnant again? Shh. Let me be the one to tell her. Why couldn't Hannah conceive a child? Well, verse 5 gives the answer. It says, Yahweh had closed her womb. And verse 6 repeats the answer so you don't attribute it to anything else. Yahweh had closed her womb. As Elkanah, Hannah, and Peninnah, and the children celebrated the yearly holiday, the temple would remind people of God's plan to dwell with man again, like he did back in Eden. It would remind of the seed of the woman who was promised to be born and crush the head of the serpent. During this time, while some gathered and went through the motions of the holiday, Hannah went to her knees. Provoked by provoking Peninnah, humble Hannah went to the house of Yahweh with only her tears for food. Perhaps she tried to comfort her heart with remembering Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was barren and had no child. Maybe she thought of Isaac's wife, Rebecca, who had no children for the first 20 years of marriage. Or Jacob and the marriage problems that he had, including a beloved but barren Rachel. If only she could have a child like Manoah's wife. She would dedicate him to the Lord like Samson was supposed to be. But this child would actually be dedicated to the Lord. From our own standpoint around our own annual holiday, we often remember the one who Hannah longed for. A king who enters into the afflictions of his people as a suffering servant, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, the kind of one who can get you, someone who could sympathize with her yet intercede for her and be her ever-present help in time of need, one who is God tabernacling with us and in us, the fulfillment of what the temple taught the people. 
Here we see the context of where God's repair work begins. Brokenness. Broken world, broken womb, broken woman. No resources, strength, natural remedies, or human gimmicks that could repair any of this. Brokenness is where God's repair work begins. And brokenness and distress shouldn't lead us to prepare for the worst, but to prepare for how that situation will make the light of the world shine all the brighter. Brokenness should anticipate repair. Losses and crosses must give way to victory and crown. But until that day, our recourse should always be to the throne of grace. The brokenness of so many things in life should not lead us to despair, but to God's repair. He's faithful. He's not a distant God, but he's God with us. And the only thing that we have to bring to the situation is our need. And he alone meets all the needs and hopes of humanity. But how does God do this repair work? Well, in the next section in Scripture, we're going to see that God does this in his presence and by his presence, picking up in verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the table by the doorpost of the temple of Yahweh, and she, bitter of soul, prayed to Yahweh and wept despondently. And she made a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a seed amongst men, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it happened as she multiplied her praying before Yahweh that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before Yahweh. Did not consider your maidservant as a vile woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great complaint and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your servant woman find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Brokenness is the place where God's repair work begins. And God's repair work is done in and by his presence. In the presence of Peninnah, Hannah found affliction. In the presence of Eli, a misunderstood accusation. In the presence of God, hope for deliverance. There are some troubles in life that just won't seem to go away, even for years, and Hannah not only had long-standing troubles, but a steadfast trust in Yahweh of hosts to deliver her. Yahweh of hosts was the way that Hannah appealed to her God. She appealed to the Exodus causer, 
the one who brought the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host, by lowering those who were high and lifting up those who were low. Hannah is found appealing to Yahweh of hosts, the covenant redeemer who delivers his people for the glory of his name. She is merely appealing to him to be who he will be. Be a deliverer and deliverer. You saw Israel's affliction and knew them and your promise for your descendants from Abraham leading to a people devoted to you. Forward your covenant and my firstborn will be dedicated to you just as you have taught your people. God's servants seem to pray best in brokenness. It's then that they recognize that repairs only get done when the repairman is present. Repairs to broken situations are only found in repairing to God and being in his presence. The priest, Eli, as we saw, lacked sympathy for Hannah and her situation. But as you know, we have a better high priest in Jesus, <coughs> who the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hannah knew the same God of grace and truth that we know today. And it's in knowing God that we know how to approach God and to appeal to him by praying his character to be displayed in the situation and praying that his will would be done. God's repair work is done in his presence and by his presence. This is a freedom that we should not take for granted, the freedom to flee to his presence to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God's repair work is done by his presence. It's not done by an extra measure of obedience. Drummed up obedience never merits relief. It only increases the burden. And God acts based on our need, not our earning it. Our only hope is not our obedience, but Jesus' gift of his obedience to our account. You can never turn your turmoil into triumph through toil, but only by trusting in the triumphant Christ alone. Your obedience can never do what Christ's obedience has done for you. Next, we're going to see in this chapter that God's gift in this situation is a son dedicated to his repair work. We'll pick up in verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before Yahweh and turned back and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. Now it happened in due time that Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, 
because I have asked him of Yahweh. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to Yahweh the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the young boy is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before Yahweh and stay there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what is good in your eyes. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may Yahweh establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of Yahweh in Shiloh, although the boy was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the young boy to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to Yahweh. For this young boy I prayed, and Yahweh has given me my petition which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to Yahweh. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to Yahweh. So he worshipped Yahweh there. Brokenness is where God's repair work begins. And God's repair work is done in and by God's presence. And God's gift is a son dedicated to his repair work. As you recall, Hannah prayed to be remembered, and Yahweh remembered. He saw her affliction and acted. The idea here in the text of Yahweh remembered is not meant to convey that sometimes he forgets, but rather that Yahweh is forwarding his covenant plan through a woman who conceived and gave birth to a son. That phrase, who conceived and gave birth to a son, is the Bible's internal cross-reference system to connect a series of important sons being born in redemptive history from Eve to Mary, sons who help us better understand the promised curse reverser, snake crusher of Genesis 3.15, the promised shepherd king of Genesis 49 who had come from the tribe of Judah. And why did Hannah conceive and give birth to a son? The answer is found in the name of her son, Samuel, which means I asked for him from from God. She had because she asked, and she asked with right motive that her son might be spent on the glory of God. She understood God's jealousy to be glorified by dwelling with man and in man as she worshiped at the temple. She understood that God gives greater grace to those who seek him, as she will later pray the concept God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As you know, Samuel's going to be an important prophet, priest, judge, who will be used to guide people toward God's choice for a king. Notice how what Hannah asked for and received was dedicated to the Lord. Samuel was dedicated to being a lifelong Nazarite who would announce God's king. Now, previous to Samuel, Samson was the last guy in the Bible to be dedicated to being a lifelong Nazarite, at which he didn't do so good as he did what was right in his own eyes, like 
everybody else. Now, you kids in the room, what do you remember about Samson in the Bible? He had hair, he had muscles, and bad ideas. God is teaching us through contrast of Samson to Samuel that when his king comes, he's going to reverse the time of the judges. This is made clear in verse 23 when Elkanah says, Do what is good in your eyes. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may Yahweh establish his word. God is going to reverse people doing right in their own eyes to doing right in his eyes as established in his word. The next lifelong Nazarite in scripture is who? JTB, John the Baptist, the king announcer. Samuel was a gift from Yahweh that was dedicated back to Yahweh. Every gift that's received from God is to be dedicated back to the Lord. And what do any of us have that we have not received? Everything we have has been given to us and is to be dedicated to the Lord. Specifically with Hannah, we see the gift of parenthood tied to dedicating a child to the Lord. And may our Lord also give us children dedicated to announcing the coming king. Let's pick up in our text in chapter 10 and here read Hannah's prayer. Chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I am glad in your salvation. There is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Do not multiply speaking so very proudly. Let arrogance not come out of your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered. Let those who stumble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. But she who has many children languishes. Yahweh puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He exalts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his holy ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by power shall a man prevail. Those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed, Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Brokenness is where God's repair work begins. And God's repair work is done in and by God's presence. 
God's gift as a son dedicated to his repair work. And here we see that God's kingdom is built out of the broken being repaired by God's son. God's kingdom is built out of the broken being repaired by God's son. From the introduction of this message, you might recall the question, how could Hannah's broken home situation have anything to do with the kingdom of God? Well, in her prayer, you hear the voice of someone whose citizenship is in heaven with a warning to the self-sufficient on earth. You hear her heart praising Yahweh and not her own devices to conceive, her horn or strength being exalted in him and not by her abilities. You hear retribution towards enemies by him and not vengeance by her, being glad in his salvation and not any work achieved by her hands. You hear her recognizing God's unique, exclusive, holy character, that he's the rock, our protector, provider, and guide. And with this, she prays a warning to the self-sufficient who are more prone to act than to ask and wait. A pivotal phrase for the rest of the book of Samuel is Hannah's words, with him actions are weighed. Whether it be Eli's vile sons or King Saul, handsome and tall, the taller they are, the harder they fall. And who can forget giant Goliath? God is still weighing actions, and people will reap what they sow. The self-sufficient today still want to install a Saul who will fix the current political, economic, religious situation. And those people will reap what they sow. They will get their choice for a king, but not God's choice. The humble don't trust in their arm, but in God's. So they pray and they wait for his anointed, rather than trying to raise up their own counterfeit rescuer. God's deliverance of Hannah is a faint picture of how God carries out his kingly rule in the world. He shatters the bows of the mighty, provides delight and righteousness for those who hunger for it. As king of all, he puts to death and makes alive. He is the king of resurrection and retribution, making the poor rich, exalting the lowly, raising the poor from the dust, the needy from the ash heap, that they might sit with royalty and inherit a seat of reflecting God's likeness to God's creation. The supports of the earth belong to Yahweh. He's the one who set the world on them with no help from anyone to make him the king of these things. It is characteristic of God's kingdom for the poor in spirit to be blessed with the kingdom of heaven, for those who mourn to be blessed with comfort, for the lowly to be blessed to inherit the earth, and for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness to be blessed with satisfaction, for the merciful to be blessed with mercy, for the pure in heart to be blessed with seeing God, for the peacemakers to be blessed with being called sons of God, for the persecuted for the sake of righteousness to be blessed with the kingdom of heaven. 
It could be said to Hannah as well to us today. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Do you remember that it was because Yahweh had closed her womb that these things happened and Peninnah's persecuting words fell on her? It is God who has given you the crook in your lot in life. Not to punish you, but to display his grace towards sinners here on earth. So rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Hannah's little salvation is a picture of God's big salvation. As she prayed, he keeps the feet of his holy ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by power shall a man prevail. Hannah didn't prevail by power, but by praying to the God of all power. This is a great verse for those concerned for God's people amidst uh, prevailing darkness in our own land and think that they might be able to prevail by their power by influencing human government somehow. This text reminds us that not by power shall a man prevail. Well, if you can't hope in your own power or the power of those uh, that are in high places, then who can you hope in? Well, Hannah reminds us in the end of her prayer that those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Our hope for a salvation that would both destroy and deliver and render justice to the ends of the earth can only be found in the Lord. He will give strength to his king. Notice that the strength is to his king and not to people because deliverance is by the king's strength alone and not the power of man. And he will exalt the horn or power of his anointed. This word anointed is the word Messiah. This is the first time that it's used within the prophets. And you see here Hannah combining the idea of king and Messiah together. Her desired deliverance was found in God's king Messiah, the one that he anoints, not that anyone else anoints or appoints. The book of Samuel teaches us a theology of kingship, and kingship involves a reversal of politics and economics and worship, of pain and joy, of life and death. The theology of kingship in Samuel teaches us the reversal of everything that's perverse in the world and that it's the king Messiah alone who does this. Now, if you would join me in flipping over to Luke chapter 1 together, verse 46. I'm going to go to Luke 1, 46 together, which was our scripture reading this morning. Luke 
Here we're fast-forwarding from Hannah's Magnificat to Mary's Magnificat, from a persecuted woman to a poor woman. And you tell me where you think that Mary learned to pray like this. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever." Where Hannah prayed these same truths during the time of the judges, Mary prayed in the days of Herod the baby slayer and Caesar Augustus the power-hungry data collector. Despite the great troubles of her day, Mary did not magnify the issues of her day, but magnified the Lord. She rejoiced in God, her Savior, Rather than worrying about the threats of proud rulers and concerns about what Caesar was really doing with the census, she believed more in the promises of God than the threats of man. And she recalled God's might, his holiness, and the mercy that he has toward those who fear him. She likely recalled his mighty deed in bringing down the pharaohs and souls of the world and bringing up the Israelites and the Davids. She knew God's kingdom was not in hungering for bread alone, but for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, trusting him by faith to protect, to provide, and to guide, trusting that he would remember and forward his covenant as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. Special sort of child was Mary praising the Lord for? Well, it's the one whom Hannah prayed. He will exalt the horn of his anointed Messiah. If you look back in Luke 1.30, you see the answer to the question and what the angel said to Mary. Luke 1.30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. Brokenness is where God's repair work begins. And God's repair work is done in and by God's presence. God's gift is a son dedicated to his repair work. And God's kingdom is built out of the broken being repaired by God's son. 
Hannah's little salvation reminds us of the big salvation that Mary rejoiced in concerning the Son of God, Son of David, Seed of Abraham. Little deliverances in life should remind us of God's big deliverance, which has come and is coming. Just like sharing little gifts today reminds us of the biggest gift of Jesus wrapped in the manger, coming to the exile to break the exile, coming to the darkness to break the darkness, come among the unholy to make holy, come among his enemies to forgive and redeem, come to take upon himself the curse, to be himself the blessing of God with us. Do you see how Peninnah's persecution led to Hannah's prayer and how Hannah's trial would lead to the salvation of a whole people? Yet these things did not happen because of Peninnah, but because of God who takes what was intended for evil and uses it for his intended good, continuing to bring about yet another kingdom servant for the glory of his name. What a wonderful God we have, and what a wonderful comfort we have in the promises of God. May he teach us to pray them and to find joy in receiving his gifts because we asked, remembering that all despair must give way to deliverance, and the time of deliverance will far outweigh the time of despair. What a gift is the Son of God for the people of God. Amidst all the things that you might want for your children and grandchildren and nephews and nieces to have as gifts today, may having God and godliness be at the top of the list, if not exclusive. Train your hearts away from despairing of persecution and suffering and the temptation to hope to install a king over yourself according to the desires of your heart. Learn to believe Luke 12, 32. Do not fear, little flock, for your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. He will take what is broken and repair it. So keep remembering God's character and God's promises while asking for his kingdom to come and his will to be done until he does what he taught us to pray. For our Father is well pleased to give us the kingdom, the king's place under the king's power as the king's people in the king's presence forever. Amen. We'll close in prayer and you'll be dismissed in our fellowship. Our gracious Lord and King, Jesus, born of a virgin, truly God and truly man, our great priest, the one who would be man who could represent us to God and God who could represent yourself to us as man, the exact imprint of the nature of God because you are God, a very God. Come to dwell among us and even in us that you being the temple would make us the temple until your salvation extends to the ends of the earth and there is no more temple because everything is in your presence 
dwelling with you apart from sin and death and pain and a day in which there are no more tears, only rest and rejoicing. Teach us to long for that day, to hope only in that day, to look only to you as Savior, to look only to your power, to always trust in you and to not despair of our broken situations, but they would only make us anticipate your complete repair, which you've promised to do in your covenant. We wait and we long for that day. Help us not to be sidetracked, but totally focused on you as we will be in that day. Amen.